Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This morning we are looking at the passage that goes from verse 13 through chapter 3, verse 5. Please give your full attention to God's word. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may, be, may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. A week ago, last Lord's Day, I had the privilege of baptizing my grandson Judah. This took place at my daughter and son-in-law's church north of Pittsburgh. It was a very special and moving experience for me and for my family, especially in light of what you know was some extraordinarily difficult and dark days during his birth and many of the struggles that the family's been through since his difficult birth. During that baptism, while it was going on, the pastor of their church was assisting me and I thought he seemed a bit distracted. And I found out shortly why, because after the baptism was over and we'd all returned to our seats, he walked up to the pulpit and kind of sheepishly announced that he couldn't find his sermon notes. And I just sat back there helplessly aching for him. You have to understand that we preachers fear this catastrophe more than we fear death itself. As a matter of fact, it's not at all uncommon for us to have a recurring nightmare. We have this bad dream where it kind of picks up in the middle where we walk into church and all of a sudden it's just not our normal church, it's actually a huge mega church and there's thousands of people there waiting and we walk up to the pulpit and as we walk into the pulpit we realize we had forgotten to write a sermon or we couldn't find the notes like us, this dear pastor in Pittsburgh. It's a, a variation on something I'm sure most of you have felt, especially if you've ever been to college. I know that college students have this. If, if you've had this as college students, this bad dream, I just don't want to discourage you, but you're going to face it the rest of your life. It's going to keep recurring that you are on your way to your final exams at the end of the semester, and as you approach the classroom, you suddenly realize you've never been to a single class You'd never read a single book and you'd never done a single bit of the homework. You're totally unprepared to take the final. Or was it a dream? For some of you, that's recent history. <laughs> I 
I suppose, and I remember if you're really stressed out about it, life, you find out you forgot to get dressed before you went to your final too, but that's only on a really bad nightmare. Well, I am glad to say that God was gracious to my fellow pastor, and as he had announced it and was about to explain how he was going to wing it through the next 30 minutes or so, his uh, sound guy came running up from the sound booth and had the notes in his hand, said that he had uh, mistakenly or absentmindedly left them beside the soundboard in the sound room, so he was pleased to get his notes back and everything went on fine. There's something that's uniquely human about a fear of facing the future unprepared. My dog lays around all day, doesn't worry about the future at all. I don't think he has a single fear about what's going to happen in the future. There's something about being human that enables us to contemplate the future and therefore to fear it. We're made in the image of God back in the book of Ecclesiastes, it talks about eternity in the heart of man, and I think that speaks to the fact that because of God's image, we have a sense of eternity past, eternity future, and that enables us to both dream about the future and also to fear the future. Well, here in 2 Thessalonians, the stakes and the fears are much higher. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know that Pastor Owen and I have handled a couple of very dark and difficult passages, Things that passages that are full of scary revelations about things that are to happen in the future. Back in chapter 1, we saw how Paul writes to the Thessalonian Christians about the day when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, inflicting vengeance on those who will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. And then last week you looked at chapter 2, which describes some of the events that come before that last great day of the Lord when Christ returns. And it speaks in chapter 2 of a time of great rebellion, a time of a great delusion, and the revelation of a fearful enemy of God and of the church, whom Paul calls the man of lawlessness. After having written those dark truths about the future, Paul understands that these new believers, and remember this church in Thessalonica had just been recently planted, these were new believers, he understands that this could really shake them. This could cause them to fear the future, to fear for their own destiny. You can imagine, maybe you yourselves sitting through those sermons the last couple of weeks have thought to yourself, would I stay faithful in a day of great rebellion and delusion? Would I still stay loyal to Christ if I had to lay down my life, if I had to be martyred because of my commitment to Christ? What if I fall into sin and unbelief at the point before I die and before Christ, or before Christ comes again? It could strike that kind of fear into your heart. I think that's why Paul, in these concluding verses in chapter 2 and beginning of chapter 3, he wants to encourage these new believers. He wants to comfort them. He doesn't want them to be afraid. And he tells them that because of the gospel, we don't need to fear the future. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to fear being unprepared for death or the return of Christ. Because if we believe the gospel, 
then we know that our faith will not fail. How do we know that? And Paul tells us, he gives us the foundation here to how we can know that no matter what we may have to face in the future, our faith in Jesus Christ will not fail. Paul's concerned for their emotional stability here. You can see that back at the beginning of the chapter. Go back to the beginning of chapter 2. Paul says to these new believers, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Even though we know the future, we are not to be afraid. We're not to be shaken in mind or alarmed. And as we look at the passage we just read a few moments ago, there's the, we have there the only exhortation that Paul gives to these new Christians. It's found in verse 15. And what he says there is, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold on. Don't be quickly shaken. Don't be alarmed. Stand firm and hold on. Hold your ground. We are not to live in fear. Matter of fact, you find out as you live the Christian life that fear and faith cannot coexist. They cancel each other out. You either live in fear or you live in faith, but you can't live in both. We need to walk by faith. And so Paul, what you notice here, though, is that he doesn't comfort them. He doesn't encourage them the way that we might tend to do it. He doesn't say, oh, you guys are so great. And he has commended them in the past, we know that, but he doesn't point them to how faithful they are, how great their faith is, how hard they've studied the scriptures, all that they've done to serve the Lord. He doesn't say, you guys are so great, you're going to be fine, don't worry about it. That's not what he says. He also doesn't try to feed them some kind of blind optimism, say, all oh, things will work out, don't worry about it. Notice how he responds to the possibility of them being shaken by their fears. He teaches them some theology. In other words, he points them to what the scriptures teach us about who God is. Because that's the cure to fear. Contemplate who God is and what he has done and your fears will dissipate. And that's what Paul does here. There's nothing that ails you today, emotionally, psychologically, that good theology can't fix. The first thing Paul teaches is that we are not to fear because we are chosen by God. We are not to fear because we are chosen by God. Look at verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. If you're a Christian, it is essential and central to your identity that you're a chosen person. You are chosen by God. Don't ever forget that. That's the first thing that Paul points to. It's a foundational truth. You are chosen by God. Jesus understood the importance of his disciples understanding this. This is why he said boldly and blatantly to them, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. It says here that we were chosen to be the first fruits. Talking to the Thessalonians, you were chosen to be the first fruits. The word first, 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 first fruits there, let's try to say that many times fast. First fruits, it is a word that Paul uses elsewhere, but actually I don't think this is a good translation. 
And actually, every commentator, every scholar I checked on this uh, uh, disagreed with how, with how the ESV translates it when it says that uh, you were chosen as the first fruits. This is a textual question. It's a translation question. I won't get into the te technicalities of it. But it's clear to me after studying it that the right translation is one that you'll see in other translations. And you'll also see it in the footnote of the ESV. You were chosen from the beginning is what Paul really intended to say here. You were chosen from the beginning. Now, there are a lot of reasons why I, I believe that's the right translation, but the, the most important one to me is that first fruits doesn't fit the context. Paul never talks about us being chosen and connects it to the idea of first fruits. That's an, that's, matter of fact, it's hard for commentators to even say what is the connection there. But there is something that Paul often says, and he repeats all the time, which is when were we chosen? He talks about the timing of the choosing. In many places in his writings in the New Testament, he talks about when we were chosen. Here he says, we were chosen from the beginning. Probably the clearest place where, God, where Paul spells that out is in Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to what he says there, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. That is a foundational passage for understanding who you are and what God has done to save you. And what Paul says there are two very important points that come from that passage. First of all, God chose us long before we chose him. God chose us long before we chose him. Matter of fact, he chose us before he created the world. Second point that Paul makes is that his choice of us wasn't based upon anything foreseen in us. He says it very clearly in that passage. It's not as though Paul looked into the future and saw that we would have faith and therefore chose us based on what he saw in the future. It says very clearly the basis of his choice there in Ephesians 1. He says it was according to the purpose of his will. He chose us because it was his will to choose us. As Paul says in Romans 9, therefore salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. On God who has mercy. He has mercy on whomever he wills, Paul says in Romans 9. God chose us because of his good purpose and will. Now, I'm not going to go any further with that because it's not my intent this morning to give a theological defense of the doctrine of election or predestination or God choosing us. I'd like from this point just to assume that it's true and it teaches it from the beginning of scripture to the end because I don't think that's Paul's intent. Paul doesn't bring up God choosing us here to win an intellectual argument. He's not dealing with the, the heads of the Thessalonian Christians so much as he's dealing with their hearts. He wants them to find comfort in that teaching of Scripture. He wants them to find strength for their faith. He wants to take away their fear of the future by pointing to what God did so far in the past. God chose them to be saved before he created the world, before Adam and Eve ever sinned. 
God had already chosen them to be saved. He was, they were already part of God's eternal plan. John Stott says, The doctrine of election perplexes our minds, but it comforts our hearts. And sometimes in our theological circles, we're so f- quick to defend philosophically and theologically the concept of election that we miss out on the great comfort that there is in this doctrine. That God initiated our salvation, not uh, we didn't do it. God did it. Paul brings up election here to comfort and encourage these fearful Christians. When I was a, a new believer, I was a teenager, an older teenager. In the first youth group that I had the opportunity to be involved with was at my brother's church, and it was a, a church that, according to its theology, did not teach this view of election and predestination. They emphasized choice. The idea was that God sent his son to die for everyone so that everyone has the possibility of being saved, but really the choice that determined a person's salvation was their choice. Everyone had to make the call on whether they believed in Jesus or not so that they'd be saved. And of course, they taught consistently then that if Salvation was based ultimately on the sinner's choice, then the sinner could choose not to be saved at any point in their life, anywhere in the course of their spiritual journey. And I discovered in a hurry, as I loved those Christian friends I had in that youth group and worshiped with them for uh, over a course of a year, but one thing that really struck me was they had revival services two or three times a year where they bring in a, a, a dynamic preacher to come in and and preach gospel sermons, and he'd always have an altar call, and, and there'd always be lots of people coming down. And what really troubled me is that my friends kept going down over and over. Every revival service, my friend would, friends would go down and receive Christ again because they were young Christians. And you know what the life is like, especially for a young teenage Christian. You know, today you walk with the Lord, tomorrow you don't. And maybe three or four days you don't, and then you come back to the Lord. It's, the initial stages of Christian life are so up and down, and they would be in constant fear that they would be backslidden, that they would have fallen away from the faith, that they would be under God's wrath again. And it, I felt over time it really hampered their growth in the Lord because they were constantly in fear that they had not believed enough and that they were not doing what they should be doing as a Christian and they'd always coming back and being saved over and over again. It wasn't until I went to college and was taught better biblical theology there that I understood that it wasn't up to me to keep believing, that God had initiated my salvation, and that it was his work ultimately, that my salvation predated my choice to follow Jesus. My salvation began before the world was created, and the choice that caused my salvation was not mine but God's. It's important that you understand when you think of your salvation that the foundation and source of it is in God, not in you. The second thing that Paul teaches here is we're not to fear the future because God has called you by the gospel. Remember where you stand. He says you need to stand firm. Where are you standing? Are you standing on your past service? Are you standing on your your profession of faith? What are you standing on? Paul says, Stand firm on the gospel. Look at verse 13. He says, God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel. 
God chose to save us before he created the world, but that choice of God became real in our lives in space and in time when the Holy Spirit brought us to life, opened our eyes, opened our ears. When we began to understand who Jesus Christ really is and what his death on the cross really meant for us personally, it was the truth that called us out of darkness into light. It's the truth that called us out of death into life. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he's talking to these new believers in Thessalonica and he, he's talking about how confident he is that they truly know the Lord. And he says beginning in verse 4, we, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm in the wrong book. I knew that didn't sound right. Let me go back to 1 Thessalonians 1. There we go. Beginning of verse 4. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. We know that God has chosen you. What a radical thing for Paul to say. We know that God has chosen you before the foundation of the world because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Paul understood that those whom God has chosen receive the Holy Spirit so that they will believe the word, believe the truth, and thereby be justified by faith alone and enter into a relationship with God which sanctifies them, which conforms them, transforms them into the image of Christ. It's a response to the truth of the gospel that is the difference between those that are saved and those that are lost. You can see this in the passage, if you go back to the passage from last week, back in verse 10, of 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul says, In the days of the man of lawlessness, people will perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. In verse 12, he says, They are condemned because they did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. It's holding on to the truth of the gospel is the means by which we maintain our assurance. We don't look to ourselves how we have lived in order to be sure. We look to what we hold to. The gospel truth of Jesus Christ is death and resurrection. And so Paul says in verse 15, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or our letter. The word traditions, we tend to use it in a way in which Paul doesn't mean it here. We tend to talk about scripture as God's word, which is fully authoritative. And then traditions, we usually mean the teachings of men, which may be good or bad, depending on how they reflect the word of God. We always hold men's traditions up to the light of God's word to determine whether it's true or not. That's not the way in which Paul's using the word traditions here. Tradition, in its barest meaning of the word, is something that's been passed down from authority. So you've got a, a, a position of authority taken, then that is passed down from generation to generation. That's tradition. And the authority that Paul's referring to here is the authority of Jesus Christ. He's talking about apostolic tradition. 
He says, what we taught you in word or in, writ in written word or spoken word, these are the traditions, these are the truths which have been handed down from Jesus Christ through us to you. And so again, he's talking about the gospel. Remember what Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the same quote-unquote tradition of the gospel that Paul is saying to these Thessalonians, you need to plant your feet firmly there and cling to what you've been taught. Cling tenaciously to the truths that you've been taught because that is the means of your salvation. It's the gospel that saves. There are powerful forces in this fallen world that are seeking to knock you off your foundation. Powerful forces. Forces like temptation from the evil one. Persecution from the enemies of God. Suffering. Loss. False teaching. And Paul says, stand firm on the truth. You don't need to fear being prepared in the future because your confidence is in the gospel, not in yourself. Your confidence is that the gospel is true. And so when you begin to doubt salvation, don't go back to look. It is helpful sometimes to see how the Lord has worked in your life, but don't go there as the foundation of your hope. Go to the gospel. Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins, was buried, and was raised from the, from the dead according to the scriptures. Stand firm and hold to the truth, Paul says. Job was a great man of faith. But God tested his faith. He allowed powerful forces to come against his faith. The loss of his family, the loss of his, the, the respect of his wife, the loss of his health took him to the very doorstep of death itself. And he pleaded with God to tell him why, to reassure him. And the only answer that God gives at the end of that great book is, I am sovereign and I am faithful to my promises. That's all that Job needed to know. He didn't need to know why he had to suffer like that. He only needed to know that God is sovereign and God is faithful to his promises. And that's what we hold to in our storms today the gospel truth Jesus died for my sins and was raised from the dead Psalm 62 verses 1 and 2 for God alone my soul waits in silence from him comes my salvation he alone is my rock and my salvation my fortress I shall not be greatly shaken because God is my salvation and it comes from him the third point that Paul teaches here is that we are not to fear for the future because God will finish what he started. Let that sink in for a moment. If God initiated your salvation before the world was created, and the promise of Scripture is that he will finish the work that he has started, you should have no fear for the future. Having been saved by God's grace, we must grow in faith and obedience. The Christian life is hard, we will struggle. But Paul encourages these new believers by reminding them where the source 
of that growth in faith and obedience comes from. And that's what's in verses 16 and 17. He says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Again, he doesn't point to what they must do. He points to what God is going to do. God the Father, God the Son, working through the Holy Spirit, will comfort our hearts and establish them in every good work and every good word. You see, as I said a moment ago, our assurance of our standing with God is based upon the truth of the gospel. And that assurance of salvation through the gospel is strengthened by our experience of God transforming our works and transforming our words. It's God continuing to do what he began to do so long ago. And that's the kind of confidence. That was really striking to me as I read the first five verses of chapter 3, how confident Paul is there. He speaks with incredible confidence for his own salvation and his own ministry, as well as for these Thessalonian Christians, this Thessalonian church. He's basically saying, let, let me look at verse 3. What a clear statement of confidence in verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. He will establish you in every good work and word and guard you against the evil one. When I was a, a, a young boy, maybe 8, 10 years old, I went to a neighborhood VBS and the leader of the VBS called me aside after the program was over one day and took me out behind the church and sat down and explained the gospel to me. And, uh, you know, being a good, obedient child, I nodded my head to everything he said. And when he said, do you want to pray with me to receive Christ? I nodded my head and he prayed with me and I repeated the words after him he wanted me to repeat, feeling like a total fake the whole time. I didn't mean a word of it. I was just doing that to get this over with so I could go home and play. And... He gets to the end and, and feeling as though he'd led me to salvation. He said, you know, I want you to go home now and I want you to find a stake. Ask your dad for a stake and take it out in your backyard somewhere. Take it back in the woods somewhere where it won't be bothered and, and drive that stake into the ground. And then in the future, when you have those days when you doubt whether you're really saved or not, I want you to go and I want you to look at that stake and, and be reminded of the commitment that you've made today to follow Christ. Well... I didn't do that. I didn't put a stake in the backyard. But even if I had, so what? There would be many days when I would renounce that commitment. I didn't make a real I didn't really make a commitment that day and even after I did make a commitment to Christ later on. That was not where my confidence lay. That's not how I deal with my doubts. Is to go back and look at a day where I made some commitment. I go back before the foundation of the world. That's when my salvation was made clear. That's when it was made sure. What if some rabbit or fox or dog came along and took that stake and ran off with it? Would my salvation be unsure at that point? Of course not. The only stake that's important to remember when I'm doubting my salvation were the stakes that went through the hands and feet of my Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's where my salvation was made complete. All of this is to say, 
is if our salvation is ultimately God's choice, and it depends upon God's choice and not my weak choices throughout life, if it's based on his sovereign purpose and will, and his will is not only that we be saved from the fires of hell and eternal condemnation and punishment, but his will is that we be transformed into the glorious image of his son and share in his glory for all eternity. If that's his good purpose and will, then I need to have no fear for the future because it will happen. God's will cannot be thwarted. Let me just share some quick scriptures with you. Isaiah 46, beginning in verse 9. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Now that's speaking about God's big plan for all of history. But guess what God's big plan for all of history is about? Saving us. My salvation is his big plan and purpose for history. Your salvation is his big plan and purpose for history. And he will not be denied. His will cannot be thwarted. He will not fail to accomplish what he is intended to do. Romans chapter 8 verse 30. Those whom he predestined he also called. And those whom he called he also justified. And those whom he justified he also glorified. If you're justified by faith in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will be glorified because God cannot be stopped. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will not fail. And then finally, just to the end of 1 Thessalonians, a letter that we've just finished studying a few weeks ago. Listen to how it ends with this benediction at the end. Verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Do you need any more encouragement than that? No matter what you face, you are in God's eternal plan of salvation. And he will not be denied. Parents, have you ever tried to cross the street with one of your toddlers? Some, you know, one of your children under the age of four or five. And you've maybe got a diaper bag and snack bag and, and toys under one arm. And you just got one hand free. And you've got to get from this side of the street to the other side of the street. And there's all these big trucks and cars going by. And you say, hold my hand. And you grab a hold of that child's hand. And you squeeze it. And you squeeze it harder. You squeeze it to the point where all the blood is squeezed out of it, to the point where the child's begging you, Mommy, Daddy, it hurts, stop. And you drag them across that street until they get safe to the other side. Because there's no way that that child is getting their hand out of your hand in the midst of that kind of danger. That's the image that I always think of when I read this promise given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen carefully, John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. 
I and the Father are one. Our salvation, past, present, and future, isn't dependent upon us not letting go of God. It's totally dependent on God not letting go of us. Let the rebellion come. Let the suffering come. Let the persecution come. Let the man of lawlessness come. Our God is faithful. He is our rock. He is our salvation. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our doubts. You have promised all these things over and over again in your scriptures. And yet, like Peter, we tend to look at the storms around us, the the waves and the water, and take our eyes off of Christ. Father, I pray that through this passage of your word and through the administration of the Lord's Supper, our faith would be strengthened today, that it might drive out all the fears of the future, knowing that we are securely in your hand, never to be lost. In Christ's name we pray, amen.